Welcome to The Art of Marketing, a podcast webinar series to help you connect with your customers. We talk with marketing directors, executives, and business owners to learn more about their approach to marketing, hear which tactics deliver results in different industries, and give you some ideas for your next campaign. The Art of Marketing is brought to you ad-free by Applied Art and Technology. Applied Art is a creative studio that helps businesses create professional content that gets results. From video production, websites, virtual events, and much more, Applied Art can help you build the bridge from marketing to sales. To learn more about our company, visit our website at appliedart.com. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. This is The Art of Marketing. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 34, the What Successful Companies Do Differently with Kathleen recent episode. Really excited to have everybody here on the call today. We've got our regulars, Mark and George, our partners, Shannon Quinn, our (laughs) business development manager, and myself, Ryan, and I'm in marketing. Uh, Today, we have a really good guest on that we're going to have a lot of fun stuff to talk about with all things business with Kathleen Reeson. Uh, Kathleen, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you can you share for our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a, a business coach, uh, an executive coach. I study in the space of transformational leadership. I, I run a lot of different businesses. I ran an advertising agency for ten years. I'm the the thing that I am. I say I'm a recovering CPA. So follow my background. It's like a bouncing ball. But I'll tell you, uh, really, my heart is in creation and creating a new and, and what we've never believed was possible, that's the space where I say yes and, and light up. Absolutely. So who do you serve nowadays then if you've been through all through the ringer with different things and the CPA journey and all that stuff? Yeah. So my clients are executives. They run companies, some of our entrepreneurs. Uh, and so, so that's even a whole conversation of what we title ourselves, executive or entrepreneur. But I work with a lot of people that are in that space of, I know I want to grow in, in, in some areas. So in my business, I even have a lot of people that come to me right when that space of everything around me, my business is going well, but I know there's another level. I call that next level. And they want to understand what that is. And that may be birthing a nonprofit that may be uh, shifting something in their business. And so it's really about wherever that growth space is for them. That's typically where they come and and find me. And then they want to, they really want to reach that. And my goal is to support them in getting there. I think the um, the title of this is what successful <coughs> companies do differently. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that I find very interesting about you is that, you know, the, there's with the internet, there's all kinds of gurus out there that maybe read a couple of books. Now they're an expert on it. Um, you were a CPA, so you got to see how companies perform financially. Mm-hmm. You were ran a marketing agency for 10 years, so you understood the sales and marketing aspects of it. Uh, you owned several businesses yourself, so you understand all the things that a business owner, uh, one was B2B and some were B2C, so you understand both of those. And then um, transitioned into more of a uh, kind of a higher level. These are all tactical, but moved into a a more strategic level. What was it? When did you realize that that was that the tactics only got you so far? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. You know, for me, uh, I started my first business, my, my marketing firm when I was in 2008, I was six months pregnant with my first kid. And, uh, And so that was really about how does the business, how are we going to evolve businesses? How am I going to stand alongside business owners and and really think about how we're going to grow them? And so marketing was a natural fit to solve that. So where we want to be as a company to where we want to go, marketing was a way to create the path forward. And as I grew stronger in understanding how businesses really operate and what it requires to run the businesses, what I took for granted was that the, the leaders of the company knew where they wanted the company to go. And what I realized was really in the way for a lot of these companies is that they didn't understand where, what the vision was for the company, where they really wanted it to go. 
And at the end of the day, that was a key difference for the companies that are really successful, that the leaders have a vision and they're willing to drive the company in that direction. And I said, if I really want to support companies, the next level that I get to go to is in supporting these leaders and seeing their visions for their companies for themselves. And so that's where I, I said either measured intentions, it's a marketing firm I was running at the time, it's either going to become that or it gets to be what it's really good at, which was a strategic marketing firm. It gets to be that. And I get to go support and, and create whatever this is to support the companies. And just I looked at where the company was and said, it's really great marketing firm. It gets to be that. And I get to step into this next level. And so that's what happened. Uh, it was 2018, 2018. So it's been three years. And I didn't even really know what it looked like at the time. I, I wouldn't have labeled myself as a coach. I was a consultant through and through. And as I evolved in how I got to serve in that space, it became clear that okay, I'm an executive coach and holding, really creating a space for companies' visions and, and for executives for their, for their visions for their life uh, to come forward. That's a powerful space and that deserves the, the company in and of itself. What size companies do you predominantly work with? You know, it's a great question. It, it, that shifted for me. I used to work with smaller companies, a lot of smaller companies, and I still do. But the average company that I work with now is about 50 to 300 employees. And I used to have a revenue mark too. I, it would be based on revenue. But what I've realized, especially in technology companies, that revenue is so irrelevant to what a lot of the challenges are. I see significant shift points in companies where they get to reevaluate their visions at certain employee sizes. So when we, even going from zero to one employee, you know, there's a huge shift there. And then you get up to about 10 employees and you got to rethink your vision. And then you get up to 20 employees. And so, so there's this constant shift. Well, when we get to 30 and then to 50, now we're talking about we can no longer just sheer brute will and force get us moving forward. We actually have to employ leadership and some of these other tactics. So I really appreciate working with companies and the, the challenges of companies that are in that 50 to 300 space. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. So you, you talk about reshaping their vision as the company grows. So when you, when you establish a relationship with a company that you're working with, do you find that you stay with them over a period of time as they continue to involve? It's not a one hit wonder, right? You're working with them and continuing to work with them. Yeah. So when I ran my marketing firm, and it's no different that the way that I approach that is exactly how I approach things now. When I ran my marketing firm, I said, I really don't want a client with us for more than three years or else we're just enabling them. Our job was to train their team so that they could have an internal marketing department. They could grow in that way. Now here, same thing. My goal is to create leaders, create, create that vision for, and then let that be, be the company. So it gets to shift the company culture. And once that happens, once we create coaching as a way of being in a company, they're not going to need me, which is beautiful. So my job is to teach them how to create within their companies what they didn't know was possible. So the vision, the coaching component, uh, all that gets to happen. So right now, my clients are with me on average year and a half, two years. And, and that's what we're focusing on. How do we actually create companies that hold a vision, that they can see their vision, and that, that everyone is on board with that, the coaching within the company, we're developing leaders. I gave up being a star. I, a lot of my career, I, I wanted to be the star. And I just don't care about that anymore. Now I want to be a star maker. Can you talk a little bit about vision, <clears throat> the companies that uh, successful companies, what they do better in vision, and maybe the companies that are not successful? And if you have any examples of, of what that looks like, so we can kind of get a picture of what, what vision is really like. Yeah. Okay. So, so I was facilitating a workshop, gosh, it's probably been a year now, and it's with a healthcare company, so a hospital. They have a, a hospital, and then they have lots of different uh, offshoots to the hospital, orthopedic surgery, and just lots of different um, bariatric surgery, different programs. And so I have 60 leaders in the room. And I'm facilitating this conversation about the difference between intention and mechanism. And I'll give you this formula. Okay. So we'll just look, we'll walk through a mini version of this. So the formula is intention plus mechanism equals results. Okay. Intention plus mechanism equals results. If results is a hundred percent, what percentage do you believe the results are based on the intention 
And what percentage do you believe is based on the mechanism? So just go ahead, like shout out. What do you think? 50, 50, 70, 30. Yeah, I would say good 70, 30% intention, 30%. Results. Yeah. George. Yeah. So well, George and I have no, had this no, conversation. No, said 40, <laughs> so I'll, I'll take No, it's 60, 40. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in this conversation and no joke, the director of operations who really is in charge of like HVAC and making sure that the hospital really like functions. Uh, he says 1090. I said, Oh, awesome. Let's dig in there. Tell me more. And he says, well, my job is to keep the patients calm and comfortable. I said, awesome. So if the air conditioner goes out, like it blows out, the patient's no longer calm and comfortable. And so, yeah, I may have the intention of that, but he, he, his vision was, I got to keep HVAC running. Like that's the vision of where I, I've got to have 99% uptime of my HVAC. And I said, okay, great. So let's just say your air conditioner goes out. What do we do? And you guys, the 59 other leaders in the room within about two minutes, they're sitting there giving example after example after example of what they could create. So, okay. If the, if the goal is to keep a patient calm and comfortable, well, could we put some... Could we put a fan in there? Could we bring somebody in to just sit with the patient? Could we offer them ice chips? Could we move them to another part of the hospital where maybe the HVAC is running properly? They had so many different ways to support that could solve the problem of the patient being calm and comfortable. And so what I see with vision is that oftentimes we lock our vision into a mechanism. So we say, we are about keeping the HVAC up 99% of the time. But the reality is that's not vision. Vision is we're keeping our patients calm and comfortable. And we hold that space of this is what vision is. Like the intention is what the vision is, not the HVAC's got to be up 99% of the time. Because if that's where we are, we're going to set ourselves up to fail because the reality is it's going to break. It's a mechanism. It's going to break at some point. We're going to have issues. So think about that in the scope of other companies. How many times do we set our vision for our companies on something that's so specific that we get attached to how it's going to look. And then it doesn't turn out that way. And we're like, whoa, this company's failing. I don't know what to do. Think about the pandemic. You don't oh, know how I, many- I, I, a very clear example to me is if you remember Eastman Kodak. Yeah. <laughs> they thought their mechanism was film. And, and really, it was, it was images. Yeah. It was where it should have been anyway. I'm sorry. Well, why does Starbucks like? Who had coffee this morning? Where'd you get your coffee? The kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so who, who's a Starbucks fan? I don't even drink coffee. I drink tea. But okay, so, so I pay, you know what, $3 for my tea if I'm going to go to a Starbucks. But I could make it at home for how much? Like my tea bag would probably cost a nickel. But why would I go to a Starbucks? And Starbucks was really the first one that figured out people don't come to Starbucks because of the coffee. Or I was just looking up, you know, one of the local coffee shops, Coffee Smith, which is, you know, out here, not too far from my house. And I looked up what they really said they were about. And they said, everybody's a Smith of something, which I really, you know, I hadn't thought about that concept, Mm. like worksmith, blacksmith, everybody's a Smith of something. Our job is to bring the community together of the Smiths and we sell coffee. But what if, what if Coffee Smith says, I'm no longer going to sell coffee. Instead, I'm going to become a community center and we're going to put bingo. We're going to bingo every Friday night. And like, I'm not going to want, but I'm going to charge you $20 for your bingo card, you know, whatever it is. Could they still exist? Yeah. With, with where they've set their intention or their vision, they absolutely could thrive because it's not about the coffee. It's a, and we sell coffee. And that is Starbucks is such a good example in any number of ways because coffee was such a commodity before they kind of come in and flipped it all. I mean, <clears throat> how do you solve a commodity problem? Starbucks is a great example. And according to one of our friends, not only do they do you pay a premium for the coffee, but they get you to order it in Italian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, how much money do we pay for our phones? Like, you guys might even know, like, how much does this phone actually cost to produce? Like, uh, what do you think? 
to, to actually produce or what the, what the oh retail value is? No, I, yeah. Well, what is What's the actual hard cost to Apple to produce my phone? Yes. Mine's sparkly. <laughs> uh, I actually don't know, but I'm going to guess um, what the, to produce the latest phone, I'm going to guess the actual hard cost of the production, not the R and D into it is yeah. probably under, under a hundred dollars. Yeah, so I mean, just let's just throw a number out there. What do we think the markup is on an iPhone? Nine hundred percent. Yeah, so but why would I willingly pay that? I mean, same thing. Like this yeah. pen that I'm holding in my hand, I'm willingly paying a markup on it, and and I love it. And this is one of my favorite intention conversations. And it's hey, like Mark, you want to buy this pen from me? Not really. Well, let's just say you did how much, come on. It's like a quarter. How you want it? Well, if I have no desire to want it, I'm not going to. Okay. Okay. Play the game. One of you is going to buy my pen for a quarter. Who's going to buy it? I'll buy it for a quarter. Okay. Okay, You guys don't want it. I'll I'll give 30 cents for it. Okay. So here's the deal. I have a check for a million dollars, but nobody has a pen. Nobody's got a pen. So whoever has a, whoever gets my pen for a quarter, I'm going to give you my check for a million dollars. Who wants my pen? Everybody. Everybody. Wait, well, now the pen's worth $10. Who wants my pen? <laughs> Wait, exactly. Mark, how much are you going to pay for my pen now? Well, you see, Kathleen, that, that's probably not a good example for Mark because Mark always has a pen with him. Uh, yeah, Mark's not playing my game now. Like, uh, the, game, the rules of the game are you don't have a pen. Oh, so you didn't see, you didn't pen. say I didn't have a pen. That's yeah, all of a sudden the pen becomes exceedingly valuable. Now you want the pen. Exactly. So the intention is focused on not like, hey, I've got a pen to sell you, but it's focused on the big game. What's the return for that pen? In this case, would you pay a quarter for my pen if I'm going to give you a million dollars to have it? So yep. focusing on the intention and not the mechanism. So now that you know that, go back to my formula, intention plus mechanism equals results. If results are 100%, how much, what percentage is based on intention and what percentage is based on mechanism? Probably 90% on intention, 10% on result. I would agree. Yeah, or 100%. 100%. Intention. 99 and 1. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think Ryan and Shannon where are you guys at? I would I would say probably 90 10 as well cuz it's like you said if the if the obsession's on the intention not the mechanism you'll find a way to solve the problem or achieve the mission. It's just a matter of what instead of how. So I think it's 100% intention. Yeah. So there's no right or wrong answer. It's just whatever we believe. My, my belief is that it's 99.9 plus 0.1 equals hundred percent because the mechanism is important. I mean, I could give you a chalk, but it wouldn't stay on the check. So the chalk's not the mechanism I would choose. So mechanism matters, but there are a million plus different choices. There are infinite possibilities for what that mechanism could be. But the companies that focus on the intention those are the ones that succeed. The ones that build visions based on mechanism, those are the ones that get trapped because when that mechanism doesn't work, the company doesn't work. So an interesting uh, parallel to that would be that's why the lottery works so well. Yeah, go on with that. Because it's I'm spending a dollar, two dollars for the opportunity to win hundreds of millions of dollars. So that the the result is buying the ticket the intention is not that at all it's winning the the jackpot yeah so you're uh, and i think too yeah, even in our company you know uh, when we started off the mechanisms have changed dramatically over the years i mean when we first started it was the internet was just kind of coming into a thing and we were shooting everything on film and it was very primitive and if we would have stuck there we would have been out of business years ago but really our intention was to create good communications for our clients yeah the businesses that some of the the other businesses that i have with three gyms and two martial arts studios going into the pandemic okay so on march 16th of 2020 
when in the state of Iowa, there was no longer allowed to operate a physical premise. If we were stuck on that, well, we operate physical gyms, that that was our mechanism. That's, that's what our vision is. We'd be out of business. And so quickly shifting into that space. So why are we really here and going into, okay, so we'll just, we're going virtual and it might be messy, but this is where we get to go. And a lot of businesses really got to check that and say, why are we really here? And those that weren't willing to have that conversation, you know, they're not here. So let me ask you, so successful companies are very, have a very clear idea of what their intention is. Is that Mm -hmm. fair to say? Absolutely. How do you, if you're unclear about that, what have you seen? I mean, is that something you can figure out on your own or is there things that you can do to help clarify that? Yeah, so you absolutely can figure that on your own. There's, you don't need someone like me or, or even like, I mean, you guys at Applied Art, like that's, it's the crux of like, who are we? What's our value statement? So you, can you figure it out on your own? Absolutely. But the reality is that the reason that we don't understand it is because there's a lot of stuff that's in our way that we can't see. We're so, we're so focused at looking at something in one way. And so the, the ability to have someone that's, whether it's a company or a, a buddy, whatever that is, the ability for someone to eliminate the stories that we've attached to it is powerful because I'm trained to hear stories. So if you said, uh, yeah, but it, it applied our, like we've done videos our whole, like that's who we are. And it's like, well, actually, is that true? Because at Applied Art, what I know you guys are really good at is showcasing storytelling. So getting somebody's story across, and then you pick mechanisms like videos to show, showcase that, but it might not be videos. Who knows? So it's just looking at these mechanisms or like websites, for example. Yeah. When, when Applied Art started, websites weren't a thing, but now they're so prevalent. But you know, 10 years ago, websites were the business card. Now they're so much more than that. So it's all how we've transitioned. So can we identify what our own vision is? Absolutely. But we get to be really highly emotional, intelligent to do that on our own because we get to strip away those stories. We get to strip away because that's what's standing in our way from seeing clear vision. And guess what? The higher we, we go in the executive ranks, the bigger our stories get because we know what's worked. Ah. And now we're going to a place that we've never been before. So what worked isn't going to work anymore. And we can't look to the past to find the answer to the future. So I would recommend getting somebody that can support you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. You need to, you need to somebody to to really question because there's a lot of assumptions that you've made. Right. Yeah. And we don't even really, we as human beings are so great at telling us that our Mm -hmm. stories are true that we, like, we, we are, we're great rollers. I could tell you these incredible stories about what I believe is to be true, but it doesn't mean that you believe that it's true. And I'm really enrolling. So you'd be totally bought in. Like, how many people, okay. Uh, if I said, who well, I'm going to pick on one of you. So raise your hand, which one? Marm. Okay. Shannon. Uh, Shannon. I was going for you, Mark. Thank you. I know. I I saw that right looking at me. (laughs) Okay. So Shannon, what's, uh, let's just say that you say, I'm going to, what do you love about your job? Think carefully before you answer that. I know. I'm putting on the spot here. What do you love about your job? Don't don't threaten me with a good time, George. Um, Let's see. What do I love about my job? That I have a variety of solutions to offer. Okay. Awesome. So the person that's at the drive-thru that's running the drive-thru for the McDonald's, like the local McDonald's down the street has the same, a variety of options available to them. Lots of tools that they could, they could provide. What do you love about your job? Mm, what I love about my job, that it's creative. Okay. Awesome. So, uh, if I worked at Michael's, like if you went, if you worked at Michael's or Hobby Lobby or a craft store, there's all kinds of creativity there. Like there's so much that could light you up, pens and paper and all kinds. What do you love about your job? That I have it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. All right. So that it's accessible. Perfect. I was just talking to somebody at a staffing company the other day, and there's 248 positions available at the staffing company, higher than pre-COVID levels. So 
getting a job. Awesome. There's tons out there. What do you love about your job? So I'm going to let you off the hook here because we could go on and on and on. And then we would get to the crux of what Shannon really loves about her job. And based on what I know about Shannon, it's actually the level of connection that she gets to create with other people. So I'm that's, yeah, putting that's words true. in your mouth there, but yeah. So, so we could get down to what is it that's really important. And I'm using that as an example, just because Shannon, thank you for raising your hand. And it's an easy place to go, but think about that where think of the stories that we create about like, yeah, absolutely. It is creative. Sure. There's nothing, you're not wrong. It is creative. And the story, if we tell ourselves, well, we're the only company that's creative. If I had a dime for every time that I talked to the company <laughs> who said, my value proposition is that we're the friendliest company. Okay. They all say that, or we do this better than our competitors. Like, okay, well, let me tell you the one time you didn't. <laughs> and now yeah, that's right. the value proposition yeah, right. that you just blew. Right. So we get, when we have somebody that's willing to interrupt that story like that and say, well, maybe, and then we go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's when the vision can, it's there. It's always there. It's, it's not, it's not like it doesn't exist. It's just that we've piled so much on top of it that we can't see it. So now that, now that we have an uh, understanding of our vision, our intention, what else, what other things do successful companies do differently? Yeah. I mean, there's the obvious things like going back into my CPA days, like, you know, managing your cash flow. obviously that one's really important. Uh, and then making sure that people know that you exist. Like, you guys, you guys know that part. There are so many people, especially in the startup phase, this always blows my mind where I'll spend tons of money in R and D and I will have a great product, but nobody even knows it exists. So obviously how we show up and, and talk about what we, what we create, that's really important. But let's just call those table stakes. Like that's just something that we know we got to manage our cash flow. We know we got to tell people that we exist. The next piece that I see where successful companies, especially right now, it's how they lead their people, how they lead their people. I was telling you guys the other day about uh, how there are more there are more breakdowns with people right now. The level of stress and overwhelm that they're in is astronomical. So the average person, the average employee in the United States is performing at 64% of their productivity. That's a pre-COVID number, and it's actually consistent right now, 64%, which means that there's this giant gap. And if we were able to tap into that, look at what could automatically open up within companies. But it's because we as, as leaders of companies, like we don't necessarily, we're not trained in understanding how to get the most out of someone. And so that's the piece where we get to go next. Like, how do we actually open up a space where people willingly jump out of bed and like, yes, I'm going to work. Like with Shannon, when Shannon knows without a shadow of doubt, like this is why I'm here. Or, or Mark or George or Ryan, I'm just picking on Shannon. But when we know like what our true value is and that it's aligned to the company vision, they are jumping out of bed so excited to go to work. And that's totally possible. I know lots of companies that have that, that culture and uh, like, like life is good. So let's just be honest. Like if we think life is good, it has a, a little bit of a heads up because they have a really cool brand and, but they built the company that way. Like they built it that way. And now I just learned they're doing these travel tours. Like they'll work with, with corporations and plan these executive travel experiences. Like that sounds cool. And they all just started with a vision. And said, I want to, I want people, we want to create a, a company where people are super excited about coming to work every day. And then they built from there. Well, that's the, that's the intention. What, what are some examples of how people actually were able to implement that? Yeah. Well, okay. So, so think about, uh, one is you got to get a baseline of where people are at. Okay. So that's one of the things that I think a lot of companies miss and it's understanding. So it is, uh, I have a, a friend who runs a company called Workplace Dynamics. And so what they do is they actually get a lot of data on where people are at. So it's just, it's a people measurement company. And so they go in with these companies and they use these tools to understand where do people rank? Where, where do they, do they like where they work at? You know, uh, there's, even here in Iowa, the, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a survey tool like that as well, where you're ranked top workplaces, I think is what it's called. And so we've all heard of things like that, but getting a baseline, you don't have to use a fancy company like that. You can use SurveyMonkey or 
you know, Google surveys, any of those, but really we're understanding like, where are we at now? And, but it's the questions that we're asking. We're saying, okay, so are you excited to, to get out of bed in the morning? Like the conversations that we're not willing to have at work because we say that's off limits. Those are the conversations they're absolutely happening. But until we embrace those as that's, we, we work with people, we employ people, we don't employ human doings, we employ human beings. And until we're willing to address those conversations, we can't grow as a company. Because I mean, we can work with our employees at 64% productivity, but we get to grow them. So understanding from a baseline perspective, where are we? That supports us in understanding. Okay, well, now we know where we're at. We know where we want to go. And now how do we get there? So now we can build a roadmap. And oftentimes what I see is there's a, a, a distinction that I utilize is how we show up anywhere is how we show up everywhere. It's actually called the fractal philosophy. It's, it's a grounded in physics. But how we show up anywhere is how we show up everywhere, which means the, the gyms that I run, somebody that I'll give you an example. One of our students, he came to the gym. He grew a ton in, in what his physical shape was. He gained confidence. And then all of a sudden he decides to go get his law degree and he advances dramatically. And the impact on his family was huge. So that's saying that when we give someone confidence, they will then we will see that level of that 64% will grow. Okay. So, so that's an example. So how do we now look at programs in businesses that can actually up-level the confidence that our employees have? So some of the ways we're doing it, I'm working with my husband, we started this company called Corbelt and it's really designed around five different elements for employees. We know there's the physical component, there's the spiritual, there's the emotional, there's the mental and then there's the behavioral. So we've got five different areas and those areas all have to be fully functioning in order to grow. So now we can program, but we got to start with the baseline and understand where they're at. Then we look at, okay, where's the biggest area of need? And we program there. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, what, um, talk a little bit about focus. I think the, that's a, an element that's related to all of these. Yeah, having focus. <laughs> so I'm a high promoter. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of personality styles out there. Myers-Briggs, Berkman, like we've all heard them all. And the way that I follow is a very simple, uh, simple quadrants that are on. Uh, you're either promoter, controller, supporter, analyzer. And I'm a high promoter, which means that I could come up with a million ideas. A lot of creatives fall in that promoter category. So we can come up with a million ideas. But when we have a million ideas, we're really wide. And we get to be focused. So the opposite of a promoter is an analyzer who's really focused on details. Okay, so like on this call, how many of you raise your hand? Do you think you're an analyzer? Mm, to a point. Yeah, so I mean, you guys are heavier in that. Okay, so what if, if you think you're a promoter, raise your hand. Yeah, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so Ryan and I share that. So, so then the other categories are supporter, which is like, I really feel for people. Talk a lot about emotions. I want to hug. I want to show my love. I want everybody to feel great. And then there's the controllers who's like, we are going to get stuff done. And I will create those results no matter what. Like, there's carnage in the background, but I'm going to create those results no matter what. Yeah. So Shannon, what do you think of all four of those? Which one do you fit into? <laughs> I want you to pick another square and leave me the hell alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're a controller. Is this what you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that answered itself. All right, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit of a, I've got reality. a little controller part, but I've got a, I've got a supporter piece of me as well. So yeah, controllers are closet supporters. At the end of the day, analyzers are closet promoters. Promoters are closet analyzers. The reality is we're all, we're all one or all, all of these, but we just have two of these areas that are stronger than the other two. So in reality, I'm a promoting controller, which means you want something done. You come to me, you come to me. Cause I'm going to get it done. Now you may feel like crap during this process. Like everybody else around me may be like, Kathleen is mean, but you get it done. <laughs> And so like, as a coach, it's really valuable for me, you from a performance coaching perspective, you are going to get stuff done. But I know that my tendency 
is to choose getting it done over Going enjoying first. the process. So I'm about the destination, not necessarily the journey. And so focus comes like analyzers have a wicked focus. They are, they're so focused, but they get into perfection. So then they don't move forward. That's why the control, like you have controlling analyzers, they focus so much and they'll move forward, but you get into a supporter, they're not moving anything forward because they wouldn't want to hurt anybody or stomp on anybody in the process. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the, so, so with focus, it's understanding what our natural tendencies are. For me, I understand that I've got a million different ideas that come up each day. And most of those get to just die on the vine and it's totally okay. And I get to understand that the ones that I do choose, my tendency is to drive them forward no matter what. I'm not focused on the details. So having a strong analyzer by my side that can say, pause, because I want to move really fast. I want to move really fast. Pause. Let's look at this. And let's decide that the one that you decided to move forward of the million that you chose is really the one that you want to move forward. So focus is really about understanding what your natural tendencies are and then being understanding how you naturally play and then working towards what's the real goal, okay? If this is the vision of the company, a million ideas, not any of them may actually align with it. But putting the people around you that are gonna be opposite of you so that you can lock in together and understand focus is really about being committed and Whatever circumstance happens, they don't matter. No matter. Focus is committed to your commitments. I'm going to create this because I said so. So how do, given that, and then that you have a mixture of people, different personality types, how do successful companies manage that or leverage that? Yeah, so successful companies build their team around these concepts. They understand where all their team falls. I was just talking with a friend the other day who has an HR director that's a controller. And she didn't look at it that way. She just said, gosh, my HR director, I'm having a really hard time with this. So tell me more about this. And she says, well, the, their employees keep saying that they don't, that this person doesn't really hear them and uh, that they're like, it, it feels like a harsh environment. I said, well, t- tell me about more about the director. And so she just maybe 30 seconds told me about it. I said, oh, pause your HR director is a, is a controller. The person that really thrives in HR is in that supporter Order. space. But then the very next breath, moment out of her mouth was, well, what I really need for this company is somebody that's my second in command that can really like, take my vision and just execute. I said, oh, wow, this is perfect. Your HR director gets to be your second in command. She was trying, she was looking to hire the second in command. I mean, you already have that person on staff. Look to hire the HR director and move them around. And so the, the, the successful companies see where everybody's playing and has the team that's really going to perform because they are maximizing all of those areas. What do you find um, with what you were talking about vision and things like that? What do you find is the best mix for executive leadership for some of these mid-sized to bigger companies? So typically what we see is that the executives, the companies, the ones that are really driving companies forward, they're going to be in that promoting controller space, uh, especially the controlling. You get some controlling analyzers, but the promoter controller, because they're going to, they want to have fun, but they also want to create. Once you get into that supporter space, you absolutely can have executives in those spaces, but they've got to be really adept at flexing, which flexing means that I can sit in the middle and I can go to any space. So I've spent a lot of time studying when I say I'm transformational leadership at my core, I study emotional intelligence, which is really all the stuff we're talking about of what gets in the way of whatever we want to create. It's when we tell ourselves we can't. So somebody that's really adept at understanding that yes, I might be a supporting analyzer, but I know that I get to show up as a promoting controller and that can do that and not let their exhaustion affect them. They can be effective. But the ones that just really thrive are more promoting controllers. Like sales and marketing, those are more promoter roles. Uh, your, your accountants are more analyzers. So if you look at my background, you know, recovering CPA, <laughs> marketing, like I really have roles in all of them except the supporter space. And so for me, that's a space I've gotten to flex into and really practice being a supporter 
Because oftentimes as controllers, we think supporters are weak. They're not, they're not at all. It's not a bad thing, but understanding the value of each of these spaces. And uh, Jim Collins talks about, you know, right seats, right bus, making sure that everybody's aligned. It's just that concept is understanding that we're actually uh, launching a course tomorrow or Monday that's uh, all about these concepts. And it's just like something that's so, uh, I, when I looked at these, when I, when I learned about these concepts and understanding communication styles, it was so evident why some companies work and others don't. When you have leadership teams that don't encompass all of those, you're going to be out of balance. And then your employees will say things like, gosh, it's so harsh working here. All they ever care about are results or, you know, I really, like, it's a really fun place. It's like, it's great to work here, but we don't, we never hit our results or we, or gosh, they're so focused on the details. Like if I have to look at one more spreadsheet, I'd rather run away or pull all my hair out. So, so you can hear where the focus of the company is, but the focus of the company gets to be in the center. Have you, um, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just shaking my head. Um, have you um, seen some examples where companies were able to transform themselves? Yeah, what did that absolutely. look like? How did that process look like? Yeah. And so let's be clear on that. Cause what I heard in your question is companies that transform themselves. And so the companies really, it's about the leaders are the leaders able to transform themselves because the leaders are the company. So when the leaders engage in understanding this work and understanding how to flex, then naturally the company understands how to flex and the company sits in the middle, but the one who's actually doing the work, those are the leaders. So that's why I work a lot with the leaders and understanding this space of Okay, now let's look at where your company is and let's shift it. So a great example, I, I was just actually before this webinar talking with one of my friends who's a, a former client. He runs a concrete company and he's a chiropractor. And in his concrete company, <laughs> I know it's beautiful. Creates his own clientele, huh? Yeah, he's, exactly, he's a jack of all trades. But um, the interesting concept at his company is they have laborers they have managers and then they want to create leaders. So they're the leaders, he and his brothers, but his goal is to create more leaders. And so the question is, how do we actually move people up from, from laborer to manager to leader, like move them up the scale. And for so long, for me, I would, I, I had same situation. I had employees and I'm like, come on, you can do this. Let's go. And I wanted them to, to move up, but I realized I didn't actually create the pathway for them to do that. And so they didn't actually know what the next step was to create that. And so the successful companies, the ones that really do that, they have actually created a pathway. So we were, when I'm in this conversation this morning, we were likening it to, uh, we, we run martial arts companies as well. And in the martial arts business in Taekwondo, we have a belt rank. Okay. So you can get a maximum of 10 belts, which follows the Taekwondo ranking from zero to five belts. So up to your fifth degree. There's a doing attached to it. So you think about that from laborer to manager, there's a doing level attached to that. But to go from fifth degree to 10th degree, that's the equivalent to going from managing to leading. You can't actually get your 10th degree belt while you're alive. It's a posthumous award. So when you think about it that way, that's really just about the seeds that you planted and trusting that when you die, somebody's going to honor you with that. It may or may not ever happen. So think about that in companies. How do we apply that same concept where when somebody's like in the, the, the equivalent to the laborer position, we get to give them, okay, what's the path to first degree? What's the path to second degree? What's the path to third degree, fourth degree, and fifth degree? Because it gets to be very concrete. Some companies utilize apprentice trainings. So that would be, or, mm -hmm. or interns, but you know, these are like, these are professional employees. They're not, in, they're not people just out of school, but they, they utilize a pathway. The successful companies utilize a pathway so that I can see growth. Because a lot of times, especially with, with my, my friend that I was referring to that runs this concrete company, his laborers, a lot of them, they haven't even graduated from high school. And we're saying, what's your vision for your life? What would you like to create? And they're like, you kidding me? I can't even pay my cell phone bill. But yet they're making $50,000 a year, but no one's actually taught them how to manage money. So when I was saying earlier about these conversations that are happening, but we just don't embrace them as a company, but my employees are all frustrated about not being able to manage their money. Why aren't I addressing that as part of the company? If that's what's really stopping them from performing at their highest, then it is my problem. 
And so I get to, I get to create programming around that. And so that's, I see a lot of successful companies meeting their employees where they're at, even if it doesn't look like something that they would have thought made sense for their company. Isn't there a bit of, of investigation or questioning that has to go into that? Uh, for example, the, the employees not paying their cell phone bill, or um, they may think that it's one thing, <clears throat> but in reality, it's something completely different that, you're, that you have to deal with. Is that, yeah, would that so be fair? This was the, the turning point for him. He says that the employees kept coming to us and saying, can you, uh, can you front my paycheck? And they'd say, why? Like, what's going on? And they'd say, well, you know, my power is going to get turned off at my house. And so that's what's on their mind. The power is going to get turned off. And so they, they had so many employees that were coming to them that they finally said, we're not going to front any more paychecks. I said, okay, like, I hear you. I from a business case, I totally get that. And what would it be like if we said, okay, we'll front your paycheck. And the condition is that you go to this cash management class because I'm only going to front it for what, three months or, you know, whatever that is, I'm not going to continue to front it. We're going to actually solve the problem, not just treat the symptom. We could have a whole conversation about healthcare too. <laughs> That's, a That's whole another webinar. <laughs> <laughs> they go on for a while. And then I take it too, you have employees that are in the wrong position. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Or employees that like, really they come in and they think, gosh, I want to be that manager, but they just don't see the way to get there. And so then they get frustrated and then they end up quitting. And we had a, when we, whenever I, what you and I would, would lovingly refer to as fire someone, I look at it truly as I'm setting them up to succeed somewhere else. It doesn't mean they're a bad employee. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means whatever's being created in this situation is not ideal for them. And if I don't have a place in the company that's going to allow them to thrive, then we get to set them up somewhere else. But a lot of times we just look at it as they're, they're a bad employee. Like this is not working out. Like, go be someone else's problem. So I've never had an employee where I didn't feel like I could give them a, a referral for their future job. There are some that I wouldn't in certain jobs, but there's something like my job is to see what they really are good at and encourage them to go down that path versus just saying like, Yep. Sorry. And so that's the, I see successful companies really understanding the value of each of their assets. So their employees in this case and saying like, where would they really be a great fit and giving them the opportunity to thrive in that environment. That's all, all very, very interesting. And those are the sort of things, you know, if you read a <clears throat> business book, you get the tactical things. And so this is, this is uh, really one of the uh, differentiating uh, factors, I think. Um, since we're kind of getting to the end of our time, are there some other things that you wanted to mention? What successful companies do differently? Yeah, you know, I, I think just to tie it all together, successful companies really look at how the, the best leaders, let's just go down to actually leaders because it really comes down to the leadership in the companies they replace themselves and often. So if I'm sitting here saying, I'm the only one that can do it, do this job, I'm not really leading. So I want to replace myself. And that's been my practice. Uh, and so I'll use this as my example. The only way I've been able to run the amount of companies that we do and hold the roles that I do is because I look to replace myself often. So right now I am uh, the role that I play in our businesses, I'm looking at who's the next person that gets to replace me here because I, I don't even know what's next for me, but if I don't replace myself, I can never get there. So I am training the person that's gonna, that's gonna replace me in that space. So I do a lot of the facilitation and I love the facilitation, it's really fun for me, but somebody else gets to be able to do the facilitation as well. And so my job is to train that person, even though that may mean I may never train again, but that's okay. Because I, the reality is I could always train. It's not a big deal or coaching. I, I've got to have more coaches around me that are, is, that are, that are better than me. Cause the reality is, I, I, you know, am I effective? Sure. And there's a whole other level. So I think successful leaders replace themselves often. 
just a continual cycle. Oh, I also think the, the biggest companies that they're constantly in this space of what worked, what didn't work, and where do we get to go next? So they're not holding on to it. They're just saying something's always working, something's always not working, and where do I go next? And they don't get in this self beat up about what's not working because wherever we focus our attention is what's going to grow. So we just focus on, okay, like what's working, what's not working, where do we go next? They're constantly in that loop. And then the last piece that successful companies do differently, is, and this, is, this goes back to successful leaders, they accept feedback as neutral, which means like everything is just feedback. Okay, so a client, a prospect, we poured our heart into this prospect, like we put all this energy and time into it and they said, no, it's not, it's not blaming that other, that prospect. It's saying there's something I can learn from this. There's always something I can learn. And so the companies that get that, the leadership that gets that and says, okay, cool. We're constantly in a pivoting space while being focused. <laughs> We're constantly in this pivoting space. Those are the ones that you see consistently perform higher in S&P 100, Fortune 100 companies. Those, the, the leaders, when we talk about really holding your leadership high, you're constantly in a space where feedback is neutral what can I learn? Because something's always working. Something's always not working. Where do I get to go next? Wonderful. Such great points. Thank you so much. Great for stuff. All that. Thank you. Um, I know, like George mentioned, we're coming up on time here. I wanted to give you a shout out for your book. Maybe you can mention what's this book that you wrote and where can people find it? Oh, thanks, Ryan. <laughs> so the book is called Joy and Uncertainty, A Guide to Creating a Meaningful Life. And it's something that uh, it's on Amazon the ebook and the, and the paperback. And I wrote it. I've had a lot of different experiences in my life. My husband nearly died twice. My youngest son uh, nearly died 30 times in his first year of life. And uh, I started writing more from a space of like healing, I guess I would, I would call it. And then I realized there was a, a, a message and it was really about how we handle uncertainty. And I can tell you the moment when I was in the ICU and I thought my husband had died and where, where my mind went was, should I go to his parents' house? I doubt they would want me to call them and tell them this. I, sh I get to show up and not let, not in this space of my husband's dying. And, and, and really in that moment, I was in that, okay, where do I get to go next? I, I, will I will give myself that moment to really grieve, but where do I get to go next? And uh, same thing with my, my son. The reason we got through that whole year was that we focused on our vision. Just like we talk about for companies, we focused on our vision of, what we got to create for our family. And so in the book, we articulate, I mean, I share some of these experiences and what it's been like and, and how we've moved through these, how I have uh, really upgraded my leadership so that I can be in these cases where I have no idea what the answer is and yet still experience joy. Wow, wonderful. Super powerful. We'll make sure we put a link to your book down in the description of this webinar and then in the show notes of the podcast as well. Um, I think I can speak for everybody who's saying this is a really good episode. We had a great time having you on and uh, appreciate your time with everybody. Oh, thank you for having me on. This has been so fun. It has been. <laughs> thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you for listening to the Art of Marketing podcast from Applied Art and Technology. If you liked the episode, make sure to give us a five-star rating and leave a review so we can help more listeners connect with their customers. See the show notes for access to our free 88-page video idea book filled with ideas for your next production. And to learn more about our company, visit our site at appliedart.com.